You're listening to 1881, powered by the American Hereford Association and part of the Hereford Network. Here's your host, Shane Bedwell. Welcome back to another exciting episode of 1881. This is your host, Shane Bedwell, and I'm excited to bring you the guest uh, today to the podcast. Uh, and we're going to continue on uh, with our coverage of annual meeting uh, that was held there the end of October. And uh, we had a great educational forum, um, several great speakers, and um, on today uh, covering uh, part of the, the section that we uh, had is building on Hereford Research. And our guest today is Dr. Kim Stackhouse Lawson. So Kim is joining us, and uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the previous episodes covering annual meeting and uh, the conference that we had. It was great, uh, great interaction throughout. And uh, this one uh, really stimulated a lot of interaction as well with our membership. And uh, we had great feedback and a good Q&A. And so we thought it was very important that uh, Kim joined us. Uh, Dr. Kim Stackhouse is, Lawson is the director of Agnext at Colorado State University, and uh, she has uh, been instrumental in uh, the building of the Agnext program and getting it launched. And uh, it is the first class, one of its kind leader in the area of sustainability. And so it was a privilege to have her at our annual meeting to talk uh, about the research uh, that is going on and the kind of the current state of the union relative to sustainability and uh, how that relates specifically to animal agriculture and and deeper into the cattle production that we're all involved in. And uh, we also talked about our joint project that we have with Colorado State University uh, that the board of directors would have been uh, very supportive of and behind and uh, we would have started uh, this uh, agreement here this summer. Hopefully you've had a chance to catch up on the webinar uh, that we would have launched there in July. And we've had a few uh, different episodes covering that. But um, we thought it was important to bring an expert uh, to our annual meeting to talk more about sustainability. And uh, it was an official uh, kind of recap of our project that we have coming on and going on with CSU at uh, Olson Ranches. So, uh, Kim, with that, welcome. Glad to have you on. Great. Thanks for having me. So why don't you uh, give us a little bit of background, Kim, about, uh, you know, your, your growing up, where you're from, and uh, a little bit about your education. Yeah, great. Happy to. Um, so I grew up in far northern California. Um, for those of you who think of California as palm trees and oceans, it's not. Um, I grew up in um, big mountain country um, northeast of Redding, California. I drove an hour to go to high school and in eighth grade graduated with um, 12 people in my class. Um, and to get to high school, there was not a stoplight, just to kind of give reference to how rural um, the part of California is where I'm from. Um, my parents are both foresters and um, actually lost their jobs when I was four because of the spotted owl crisis and then transitioned um, their careers at that time. Um, we were able, um, my parents are first generation uh, ranchers because after a very large forest fire in California, actually basically the first mega forest fire that California had, um, we were able to purchase um, a section of ground um, for very, very cheap, $400 an acre because it had been um, burnt wow. up and um, so that's how I became involved in agriculture. Um, I was in fifth grade at the time, and um, my parents bought this section of ground, moved us from five acres in town, and we replanted that um, ground to trees because that's what they're good at. And then um, 
quickly became pretty good at sheet production because we didn't have the financial resources to do um, any kind of spraying um, or large kind of mechanical brush clearing. And that's what would be done on kind of a commercial timber um, operation. And so we used sheep uh, to graze in and amongst the trees. And um, quickly those sheep became um, a nationally recognized um, herd of show sheep that I showed um, growing up in 4-H and um, FFA. And then we got started into cows as well because we lived in cow country and right. um, you know, good sheep kids get taken by good cattle kids quickly. <laughs> and um, so we showed, some, so just we showed for some cattle as well. A point of reference, what, what breed of sheep? Um, so I had um, club sheep and yeah. registered Suffolk, and my brother right. had registered Columbia's and we both awesome. had multiple national champions um, with the breeding sheep. And then um, we're really competitive, actually, with our club sheep, too, um, locally and at a state level. So it was really it was really fun. And so um, I grew up very much embraced by um, the livestock industry, even though my parents were more ecologists, right, by, yeah. by training. Um, and that really spurred my interest um, going forward. So I was recruited heavily to Davis. I had very good grades. Um, I judged there and then lived in all of the different um, livestock units and conducted research. And um, when I was a senior as an undergraduate, um, San Francisco had their first Meatless Monday campaign. Um, and it was all centered around livestock's impact on climate change. And it frankly shocked me, right? I, I had grown right. up where livestock and um, the environment were so uniquely um, intertwined. And um, so I walked into Dr. Frank Metloner's office, who was a professor at Davis, um, and he was only an extension faculty at the time. Is that right? Yeah. Right. Um, and I said, I want to, I want to be a part of helping people understand um, livestock's contribution to environmental impact. And I guess the rest is more or less history. I completed my PhD with Dr. Mettloner and then um, went and started the Beef Checkoff's Sustainability Research Program for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Um, while I was at NCBA, I started the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Um, JBS recruited me from NCBA and I started their sustainability program for the company outside of Brazil, um, which is a 40, I think now it's even a $50 billion um, company outside of Brazil that JBS um, has. And then um, from there came um, back to academia to CSU to start to solve some of these um, challenges that exist, um, which really limit our ability to you know, claim sustainability in, in a lot of spaces as it relates, especially to beef production. Well, you've, you've definitely been involved in the, in the industry. And I, I think it's important, uh, you know, that, um, uh, you know, your contributions, you know, and that passion that was ignited, uh, was due to your love for agriculture. And, um, uh, you know, that, uh, not everybody that works in uh, a profession has, has that love and that background um in whatever they do and so it's it's neat to hear that story of yours and I, I think it uh you know it's it's one of those you're you're authentic all right i mean it's uh it's uh it's it's great so you know kim tell us about ag next and kind of what you know the the state of colorado or the colorado state university and kind of the stakeholders producers and you know, they, they challenged you with kind of building this program, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so Agnext was born out of a need for um, industry academic partnerships to address our most challenging problems. Um, and it's a new initiative at CSU. It sits between the College of Ag and the College of um, Vet Med and Biomedical Sciences. And um, we are a team that focuses um, on developing sustainable solutions for animal agriculture. And what's unique about this particular um, center, for lack of a better word, is that it's a first, it's a provost funded initiative. And so CSU has invested four and a half million 
in salaries and startup, just initial salaries and startups to um, build a team, a, a cluster hire around this notion of sustainability in animal agriculture. And that's what we're doing. Um, and we are attracting um, world-class talent um, to CSU. Um, some notable names, um, Dr. Sarah Place, Dr. Greg Toma, Dr. John Ritten, Dr. Nate DeLay, um, Dr. Pedro Carvalho are just some of our new hires that have um, joined the team or are joining the team um, in the next few months. And so we're so excited to be able to attract that kind of talent and to continue to build that team out. So in total, um, CSU committed 12 additional faculty hire um, to really become the center of excellence focused on sustainability in animal agriculture. Another unique thing about Agnext is that we are really intended to work in parallel and in partnership with our supply chain stakeholders from cow-calf all the way to retail and even our financial partners. And so we have set up what we call an industry innovation working group. And it's a group of 12 individuals, all who have a three-year term. So the intent is that they rotate off and we will eventually have an incredible bench. Um, but that group of 12 people, inclusive of all kinds of different supply chain partners, have really helped shape Agnext. They helped define the vision and the mission. They've helped identify what the kinds of hires, right? Like what sort of technical expertise we need. And then uh, members of the team sit on the hiring committees. And so they've been um, deeply involved in how we have shaped Agnext. And I think it's really um, defining a new frontier for academia and how we need to partner so closely with um, our industry stakeholders to be sure that we're working on things in parallel and that we're answering relevant questions and not re-answering questions, right? There's no reason to reinvent the wheel if industry has figured out a solution, right? We need to be thinking um, 10 years out. And that's really our focus. Um, what our industry innovation group has told us is that, you know, we don't need a team that looks backwards in time around sustainability, right? We don't need a team that's defensive of our practices. We need a team that's focused forward and um, is really looking to identify and scale innovation that fosters both the health of ecosystems and animals to promote a profitable industry. And um, that profitability piece comes out really loud and clear when you're talking to your industry stakeholders, right? We, we talk a lot about economic sustainability and what we heard from our partners is that's not good enough. Um, we need to be profitable and we need somebody, a group of scientists and innovators who are thinking about what the next 10 years looks like in a, in a way to ensure um, that we have healthy ecosystems, um, healthy animals, and that we have profitable businesses and um, sustainable communities as well. It's it's pretty impressive, and I I believe it's on your website the list of industry innovation your team there that uh, that that sets on this twelve member board. Um, it's it's a who's who's list of folks um, that are in every part of the the business and the livestock uh, production side of it. It's 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 a heavy hitting group, you know, and it it got our attention, I guess, as uh, you know, we were starting uh, this process and and uh, this potential research project was like, wow, you know, this is this is something that's just not a little iceberg. And it's, you know, the, the folks that are involved and in contributing, you know, to this Agnex program and the vision that you all have to give animal agriculture a, a better light and a better future. It was significant. So kudos to, to putting together all of those great people. Thank you. So sustainability gets thrown around Kim left and right. And, you know, we're sustainable and all this. And so what does it mean? I mean, what does it mean to you and kind of what are the pillars that, that we need to be focused on relative to sustainability in our, in our practices? Yeah. So I think when we, when we really start to think about sustainability, the first thing we need to do is just level set, right? And remember that this space is highly emotional. And um, 
people receive information differently um, than they ever have before, right? When you think about the media outlets that we now have to um, address just to make sure communication is heard, right? Anywhere from, um, of course, all the social channels, um, but there's, of course, electronic, there's still print, right? The the medium of which people are receiving information is um, vast and the amount of information they receive on a daily basis is um, overwhelming, right? To the point that we don't, we know that people actually aren't receiving or retaining information. And so what happens is um, people become very emotional and decisions become very emotionally driven. And we see that a lot in sustainability where perception and emotion are equivalent to science. And in some cases, oftentimes actually outweigh the science. And that's a hard space to be in, right? Especially for a, a team like ours, um, where we have you know, now nine people who have dedicated their professional careers to advancing the science of sustainability. Um, we still grapple with the emotional component of it every single day. Um, and so it's important to know that in the space of sustainability, emotion and science are on equal footing. Now, when we talk about the definition, right, we, we can get more scientific. And yes, it's very emotional, but sustainability is also multifaceted. And essentially, if you ask 100 people how they define sustainability, they will all have a different definition. And chances are, it falls within the broad right spectrum of how we would define it. And so the three the three pillars of sustainability are um, economic, so making sure you're economically sustainable. We talked about that a little bit um, mm -hmm. earlier at, and how it relates to profitability. Um, but it could be other things like um, shareholder return or risk management or, you know, any anything that you would define in that kind of economic pillar. Another pillar of sustainability is social sustainability. Um, and so that could be um, human rights, team member health and safety, labor issues, um, diversity, equity, inclusion and justice is um, a really important topic under that social sustainability pillar at the moment. Animal health and welfare falls under that social component. So we know that that, that component of sustainability is critical um, in agriculture. And then finally, the pillar that is most well known is that environmental pillar. And it's inclusive of all kinds of things, right? Biodiversity, water, um, soil carbon sequestration, greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And so sustainability is defined very broadly. And then we know that even within the social, economic, and um, environmental pillars, there's overlap, right? Where you have um, socio-environmental um, you know, aspects and um, eco-environmental aspects and socio-economic aspects. And so it's very complex, it's very broad, and there's um, a variety of different ways companies and industries are approaching it. Um, we have to be very careful, right? The, the people who are in the supply chain and in business and are thinking about this from a scientific perspective have to be very conscious that we don't get myoptic um, because that holistic approach to sustainability is, is really what is sustainable, right? And and understanding the unintended consequences of, let's say we're working really hard on water reduction in a packing plant, right? What, what might happen when we're working on water reduction in a packing plant? Well, we may compromise food safety, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we have to be very careful as we make adjustments in let's say water savings to not ever compromise um, food safety interventions that we know are essential. So really thinking about sustainability um, through the lens of holistic a, a holistic system approach and um, understanding and appreciating and respecting unintended consequences by you know making a, a change is is really what's fun about the science and what's what what also makes it a really relevant um, topic so you know the 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 sustainability front you know the the issues I mean is it you know, you, you see all the climate change, uh, the pressure on ag animal agriculture and uh, the statistics, at least for U.S. animal beef production. You know, our contribution to greenhouse gas emissions is very minimal, um, you know, and so it 
it seems like, you know, what you said, you know, emotion is driving more of this than what is actually science. Um, and so let's talk about those pressures and then maybe come into a little bit of consumer preferences on sustainably raised and then the financial implications um, that you see being driven through business to be more sustainable. So kind of, I know a yeah. loaded kind of conversation there, but you know, why, why is it, you know, we hear a lot of our membership talking and you hear a lot of folks in animal agriculture. Why are we even concerned about this? Because U.S. is absolutely the best and most efficient producer of high-quality beef protein. And we're sitting here worrying about a 2 2.5% um, you know, perceived issue. Yeah, so um, climate change is the issue that is dominating the sustainability conversation today. And it has been for quite some time. Um, in the beef space, right? Just because of the animal's biology and the fact that they produce methane, which is a more potent um, greenhouse gas molecule than um, CO2, the contributions in terms of a footprint, right, of beef are, are higher. Um, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Beef cattle production is responsible for approximately 2% of our total man-made greenhouse gas emissions, um, in the U.S., which in comparison to things like transportation, right, which is closer to 27 or 28 percent, is um, minimal. Um, so it, so it, is, it is challenging. And um, I think that that's one of those unique um, examples where you can see emotion and science um, coming, coming to head. And um, Unfortunately, right, it's hard for us to change methane emissions in um, beef cattle production. And um, we are, the U.S., and this is documented over and over and over again, um, the most efficient beef production system in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean we can't make improvements, right? And it also doesn't mean, I, I always think this is important. Remember, when you think we get nervous about climate change, but when you think about improving the sustainability of beef, right? It should be done in a holistic systems wide approach where there's a win-win, right? You should yeah. get, let's, for example, say, we're gonna reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but we're gonna improve feed efficiency and we're gonna improve profitability and we're gonna improve livability of the cow or we're gonna, right? It, it has to move in a direction that is a win-win. And if it doesn't, it's not a sustainability approach, right? It may be a greenhouse gas mitigation approach and one that will never work because greenhouse gases, thankfully also have been um, really, they're a part of the sustainability conversation. Yes, they're leading it in many aspects, but remember sustainability scientists and professionals and companies believe in that holistic approach and they're bought in to that right. perspective of unintended consequences. So I think that's really important just to think about um, you know, don't, don't get hyper reactive about greenhouse gases because we should get other wins that come, that come with it. If, if we're really going to push sustainability. Um, so why do companies care? So in the last year and a half, we've seen more than 1400 publicly traded companies come out with net zero commitments. So they're going to be carbon neutral or net zero by 2030, 2040, or 2050. It, those companies who are food companies, which there are a, tr a tremendous proportion of those, um, the majority of their emissions are scope three emissions. And I'll come back to, to what a scope three emission is. Um, but the majority of that of those emissions are scope three, which means they come from the supply chain. And if you break those down further, a large percentage will come from enteric methane or nitrous oxide emissions, which are and enteric methane is, of course, only from ruminant animals. And then nitrous oxide emissions are very high in manure management systems as well. Yep. Um, and so what we're seeing are these very large companies who have set net zero commitments before they had a plan or even were measuring what all of those greenhouse gas emissions were. Now they go, they measure them, 
they're developing plans. They're realizing as they're measuring them that a large proportion of their footprint is actually happening um, on the ranch, believe it or not. So in the cow-calf sector and they're applying pressure and that pressure is coming, you know, if it's a a retail brand that has set um, a net zero goal, it's coming, of course, back through the packer to the feeder and to the ranch. If it's a packer, it's coming to the feeder and then to the ranch. Right now, the majority of the pressure is sitting with that cattle feeder, even though they have a much smaller proportion of the overall um, carbon footprint of beef. Um, but we we see the trend, right? It's eventually going to get pushed down. And that's that's why you're seeing seeing this pressure. That's why you're feeling this pressure. Um, so if we, we talk a little bit about scope one and scope two and scope three emissions, just so that there's a general understanding um, of the audiences. Um, scope one emissions are what the company controls themselves. So when I worked for JBS, this was my packing plant, right? And it's my, let's just say we're working um, as a comparison of the packing plant in Greeley versus the packing plant in Dumas, Texas, the cactus plant. Um, and so very similar plants in terms of size, uh, um, only harvesting native um, cattle, right? All fats. Mm-hmm. Um, and the emissions that were coming from that plant were coming from um, combustion engines, refrigeration, um, wastewater treatment, you know, those kinds of big ticket items that um, the plant could control, right? So we could upgrade, let's say, engines. We could put in solar and move um, completely to renewable or, you know, something like that, something that the plant could control. Those are scope one emissions. Scope two emissions are the impact of the energy that you're sourcing from a municipality, okay? So scope two emissions in Greeley are less than scope two emissions in Cactus. The reason for that is that there's more renewable energy in the grid in Texas than there is in Greeley, Colorado, okay? The Yeah, I know, it's crazy, but it's true. Yeah. Texas has more renewable energy (laughs) than Colorado does. Um, so, um, but the point is not much the company can do right to actually reduce those emissions that's on oil and gas companies who are supplying the energy. It may be on the municipality themselves, right? The city, like, are they going to invest infrastructure in wind or solar or whatever? Now the company could of course build their own solar or wind or nuclear or, you know, whatever the options are, Um, but that's much more expensive. Scope three are all the emissions that it takes to get a stake from the farm to the consumer, right? So it includes everything on the consumer end. So food waste, the the, um, impact of the retail store, you and I driving to the store, right? And back as consumers, how we cook the food in our house makes a difference. Packaging that we're throwing away and everything on the front end. So fertilizer, crops, rangeland. Rangelands actually have emissions, right? We know that they flux, they sequester and flux. Yes. Um, the animal themselves, right? It's it's everything. And so these companies have set these net zero commitments. They have no plans on how to get there. And they're realizing that the majority of the footprint is not surprisingly in those scope three supply chain emissions. Um, And so, so that's one element of pressure. The other, and probably most significant at this point is the um, proposed rule that the SEC has put out around um, reporting of greenhouse gas emissions. So in March of this year, the secu- the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission um, proposed a new rule that would standardize climate impact reporting, okay? So they're seeing um, climate change as a risk to business, essentially. So the climate is changing. We're seeing more um, adverse and extreme weather impacts. We have companies that are committing to net zero, but everybody is reporting it differently. Some have you know, developed plans, some still have no plans, et cetera, et cetera. And it's both on the supply chain side. So um, the notion that climate change would be negatively affecting perhaps the resiliency or something of a supply chain, there's risk inherently in that. And then there's also risk in this 
alphabet soup of reporting mechanisms, right? That you can't actually compare. And you, you really, it's very difficult to even compare food companies to each other because they might be using different reporting standards. And so the SEC saw this risk, right? From an investor standpoint on both sides. And so they proposed a rule that said that reporting for all publicly traded companies in the US, reporting of scope one and scope two emissions would be mandatory. And reporting of scope three emissions would be mandatory if you had a net zero commitment or the greenhouse gases were material in your supply chain. Wow. So essentially anybody who has beef in their supply chain, those will be material, beef or dairy, sure. um, because of the enteric emissions. So that is, there, there's an incredible amount of pressure, right, around a rule like that coming um, from the SEC. And then, of course, also impending regulations, right? We don't see any yet related to climate change and animal agriculture, but there's, of course, notions and and um, concerns that, that they might um, eventually become very transparent. So that ruling, Kim, is that when does that become official or is um, it? So it closed for public comment and they haven't come out with um, a, a decision after um, public comment. But, it, you know, even if they pull the rule back a few years or, you know, delay it or um, decide that's not what they're going to do right now, I would say it's a very significant um, signal. Right. right. That 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 these kinds of risks, are, I mean, they are they're creating financial um, risk in the investor marketplace. Um, and I mean, that's an example of the SEC taking action. But companies are taking action. Boardrooms yeah. are taking action. Right. In the same in the same notion, um, large investor groups are also taking action. Right. Um, becoming more particular about how um, hedge fund investors may in, may invest dollars and um, what supply chains they're going to invest those dollars in. And so that that sort of investor um, finance, you're seeing banks start to do a, a lot more now. When, when we saw that shift about a year ago, year and a half ago, um, that put this space on a fast track trajectory to importance. And um, I don't, I haven't heard a CEO talk in a very long time who did not say sustainability and climate change were the highest priority for them. Um, and it's because predominantly, I mean, there's certainly inherent risk, right? With all of this that we're beginning to see, but the predominant pressure is coming from that investor financial um community to date. So ESGs, Kim, uh, environmental, social governance, right? That's right. Good job. Uh, yeah. Okay. And that weaves into these scopes or that is part of the Separate. metrics that, that uh, the financial companies use to, for barometers for investment then, or kind of walk us through that. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, I think it's important to, when we think about um, financial pressures, there's two. There's sustainable financing, right? So that would be more through a bank, for example. And they may have um, a green bond, a sustainability bond, a sustainability linked bond, a social bond, et cetera, where they're actually lending money to um, specifically fund sustainability related projects. Um, those are very controlled. Um, and, and really rigorous, but they come at oftentimes perhaps, let's say, um, a reduced interest rate, or they may come at a longer time to pay out. And what was it, what's been interesting about the sustainable financing space is that we have actually seen sustainable finance increase significantly, um, especially over COVID, which was really interesting. Um, so in the middle of this global pandemic, um, when, you know, many economies were, were shrinking, we actually saw the sustainable lending um, increase, which is, which is unique. And I think it's telling us to, you know, kind of the, um, the risk that the, that sustainability is removing from the marketplace, right? Because it takes this systems-wide holistic approach and you're always looking for those unintended consequences and there's lots of science involved, right? There's measurement, outcome, et cetera. Um, you actually are seeing risk being pulled um, from the 
in from the marketplace, from the investment. And so, so that's one of the reasons we're seeing this increase. ESG is another um, way in which um, markets are playing a role. More heavily focused, of course, on um, capital assets, so hedge funds, et cetera. And ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance, like you said. And there are specific standards by which um, a company can report into. And it covers that that holistic branch of environmental um, aspects. And there's four or 500 different standards right now, which is also challenging kind of the wild, wild west of what standard is going to be the best standard, right? That um, these large investment firms use. But so they're going to be a variety of environmental metrics, a variety of social metrics. Um, it could be um, team member health and safety. It could be um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It could be environmental justice. It could be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very broad. Um, and then there'll also be governance. So um, how is how many, for example, women are on the board? Is the board external or is it made up of only internal participants? Um, and so it's, it's sort of giving um, basically a, a level of um, transparency and cre transparency and credibility score essentially um, in the governance. And so you get scored in all of these categories, environmental, social, and governance. And then that becomes, um, you make that as the company publicly available, right? So it would live on your sustainability um, portion of your website. You'd report to whatever standard it is um, that you deem is appropriate as a company or that your investors are asking for. And then you can, or then hedge funds, for example, can choose to make more investments that are in the, under this ESG umbrella. And it has absolutely exploded. Um, to date, there's more than 41 trillion managed under the ESG umbrella. Um, we expect that to increase 70% um, by 2025, so 21 over 25. And today it represents one in every three US dollars. So, you know, you and I both have 401ks, Chances are good. A third of it is invested in an ESG strategy. Um, so it's um, really impactful. And it's also applying a tremendous amount of pressure to those publicly traded companies. That's a significant amount of dollars. And and just recent, right? The $41 trillion would have been um, not all of it over time, but it's happened over time. But a lot here recent. Just Since 2017. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. Yep. So let's kind of come back to the, the beef space, you know, that's, that's the, that's the outside pressure kind of coming at us, you know, as Hereford seed stock producers, cow calf producers, commercial men, you know, what can we do at this level um, to help? Cause we've provided the science we, we've shown efficient beef production um, we're, we're believers in science. Uh, obviously we wouldn't be if we wouldn't be here if we're not behind science and, and good animal husbandry. Um, but emotions driving the topic. And so it almost seems like the beef guy is a little bit of the fall guy, you know, in this process. But I think you outlined it so well that, uh, you know, the scope three emissions is taking over the, the conversation and we're, definitely involved in that in that process and we can kind of help control it so what can we be doing um you know to for innovation contribution changing the story yeah so interestingly despite this being um an incredible pressure point which we've um talked about for the last um 30 40 minutes or so now um, but we don't have um, any silver bullet solutions, right? There's not a do this and you get that. Um, and that's good and bad, right? I mean, I think that that, that is the, the reason we're not seeing a top-down approach is that there is not a silver bullet um, feed this and we'll see, you know, reduce methane, for example. Mm -hmm. um, because cattle are grazed and raised, um, everywhere, right? And in a variety of different um, regions with different ecology and different resources and what makes them so cool. Um, we need a place-based 
approach so that producers can choose what works best for them, right? In, in their own region with their own herd. And so that they can fully assess those unintended consequences. So um, we actually need more science, a, a lot more science. And we need strategies that um, can somehow span, or at least we understand, right? They either need to span regions or we need to understand how different animals um, within regions compare across regions. So I'll give you an example. We're doing um, this summer, we had a pilot project working with cattle um, coming from the Meat Animal Research Center, which we all know is a phenomenal research center and they've done an incredible job from a genetic um, component. And then we had cattle that were sourced locally. We put them at the USDA NRS, um, USDA ARS, excuse me, station in Nunn, Colorado. And um, we grazed those two groups of animals together. And they've done this for the past five years. And interestingly, in this short grass prairie step, those cattle that come from the north-south gain about 30% less than the locally sourced animals. And we don't necessarily know why. So this year, we also measure methane on those animals. Mm -hmm. And we think, I mean, granted, it's hard to measure intake in grazing systems, but we think they are at least eating the same amount. Now, what they're eating, right, becomes questions. And there's lots of science going into laying over the forage and watching the animals move and counting their bites and a variety of other things to see if they're actually choosing different um, plant varieties based on, you know, where they're from. Um, but we saw methane significantly different between the two groups. And it's interesting, right? They're the same size. Right. Um, they were all, I mean, they're not the same sires or anything, but they're within a, you know, general group of um, breed typical type, you know, stalker yeah. calves. Um, and yet we're seeing very different things when we're moving animals into different regions. So what does that tell us? Well, not much yet, right? We still need to, to know a little bit more, um, but it does tell us that a one size fits all approach is not going to work. It's not going to work um, in beef production. And we need to make sure we're giving producers tools that they can deploy that work, right, for for their region. Um, and so it's really interesting to, to really get in the space and to understand um, what's happening from a scientific perspective. Um, and so today, what producers can do, you can keep doing what you're doing. Um, efficiency is still the most important thing. Um, number of red cows, um, calf weaning weights, you know, make having those cows milk, um, smaller cows we think are better, right? They're eating a little bit less. Um, and so it's all about efficiency today. And then we need to work very fast and um, very hard to develop some additional solutions to get into producers' hands. So, I mean, we're we're excited to kind of be partnering with you um, and working with the cattle genetics team at CSU to hopefully develop uh, kind of a baseline for Hereford cattle relative to greenhouse gas emissions and how it relates to intake, uh, the literature, says there's a pretty strong correlation, you know, to that. Um, but we don't know, uh, that. And so we're, we're definitely into that space. We've included green feed, uh, machines out at Olson ranches and, uh, we're measuring that, uh, through our, uh, young sire program and just trying to get a baseline on Hereford cattle. And I think more importantly with the, the big data set that we have there and all the phenotypes that we've collected and all of our other important economically relevant traits is to see how that correlates to, you know, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and how it all intertwines because we don't know that. I mean, we have hunches, right. Of, of what works and what correlates and what, what doesn't, but you know, that's, you know, hopefully, you know, we, we can establish that baseline and, and really have a, a pretty good story to tell. Yeah, to, to, so today, um, to put into perspective how important that baseline um, emission is, 
our emission factors, so they're essentially equations that we use to estimate methane, um, are only in, in beef production, are only based on actual emissions, so measured emissions from 440 head. Um, and they have not been updated since about 2010. So they're quite, quite a ways behind when you think about how much um, the cow um, has changed, right? Since 2010, she's changed a lot. Right. Um, and so I personally think that the baselining um, is incredibly important. Um, and we're doing quite a bit of that here at CSU, um, even though it's very difficult to fund um, because it's not quote unquote cutting edge. Um, and yet we do need to know where, where we're at um, because we need a starting place. And more importantly, we need to know where the opportunities exist, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how far we've come. I, I think we've already likely selected for lower producing animals because we've been so heavily focused on feed efficiency for so long. Um, and then I think we need to think about, okay, are there decisions we can make um, from a phenotype perspective where we do end up selecting, you know, multiple traits, sustainability traits, um, where we can drive this faster and change, truly change the the cow herd because the cow herd is the ultimate bearer of the carbon footprint and it's right. okay right it's okay that she is i mean that makes total sense right she's the factory um she grazes year round um there's a lot of methane coming from her now there's a lot of really cool other things too there's lots of upcycling and there's lots of contributions to biodiversity and there's lots of um actually enhancements of water quality i mean what she does is incredible for us but if we could and i mean us as a as society if we could um fundamentally shift something about her that um made her more sustainable, a win-win, right? Where you're seeing a win in, in a win-win-win, hopefully in all three of those categories, maybe she's healthier or, um, you know, maybe she's got less greenhouse gas emissions and those two things make her more profitable or, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think there's huge opportunity to really shift that cow herd. Well, it'll be interesting as this goes forward, you know, because, uh, you know, we've, we, you're right. Uh, the association, uh, and a lot of uh, folks in the beef industry have put uh, pressure on on fertility, uh, put pressure on efficiency. Some would argue more than others, uh, but we need to continue to do that. And those are absolute, pretty easy things that producers can watch, manage. Um, heterosis fixes that pretty quick in some cases, but um, you know that. Uh, you know, it's, it's what it's all about. And I think uh, the mama cow is something that's very important to, uh, always has been. And I think the attention that she's received has been in spurts, sometimes more than others. But I, I love what you said there because it's it all goes back to her and, and we've got to do a better job of, of building the right kind of factory female, uh, the right kind of mama cow that can take us into the some of these goal years that these companies have. Um, so that, that is exciting. So one thing here, before we close, you hear about carbon being traded already and the markets, uh, insets and offsets. And so what, what should cattle producers be doing now, uh, when they're approached to, uh, you know, for someone to, to buy their carbon? Yeah, um, carbon markets are really exciting at the moment. Um, very much still um, immature and in development, but very exciting. And you're starting to see some um, more individual markets emerge where, you know, a company may have total control of their own kind of pilot market, um, which is, it's been really interesting to watch. Um, from a beef producer perspective, I would be very careful. Um, I think I think we are going to see the price of carbon increase. And I think that 
carbon from beef production will be especially reduction carbon. So actually not focused on sequestration. That's actually very hard to measure. And our uncertainties around sequestration are very, very, very high. So when you think about what a market needs, right? It, a market needs something that is they're confident in, right? That there's a, um, that it's a permanent reduction um, and that it's um, additive. So you don't want to, Right. If we're going to, these carbon markets are set up to either, I mean, sometimes help a company meet net zero, but if you're really thinking about um, reducing the impact of climate change, you, you want um, there to be less carbon in the atmosphere. Right. And so that's why sequestration is hard. It's because um, we're uncertain around the, um, if it's truly additive, right. Or if we're just putting carbon back into the soil, that's been, um, I mean, we lose carbon when we till anything, right? So um, just because it's been um, disturbed um, and is the carbon permanent. So in the beef space, I actually think our um, big opportunity is in a reduction market. So we're actually thinking about doing something that would reduce methane emissions, for example, mm -hmm. um, and in an inset market. So thinking about it as part of a company commitment where the scope three emissions, right? We, we know this scope three emissions yep. take up, you know, 90 to 97% of most publicly traded companies, greenhouse gas footprint. And methane is usually significant in that. Um, so how much would a company be willing to pay for a methane reduction inset strategy? Um, I think becomes the question. So what do we do today? Get good baselines. Get good baselines, um, watch it very closely. I would not commit to anything that's more than five years out. I think in five years, we'll have a pretty developed um, market. Assuming these companies decide this is what they're going to do, right? I think there's still this question around what's the backlash going to be for greenwashing as you start missing some of these commitments. Mm -hmm. So that's still unclear. Um, but I think in five years, um, we'll know we'll know that. So I think that there's, I mean, we know in the um, producer space, the hardest thing to do is to incentivize adoption anywhere, right? Like it doesn't, doesn't matter what the adoption strategy is. We know that um, encouraging uptake and adoption of new or different practices is the, is the real hard part. Um, but if we can incentivize it, it's easier. So I think that there will be an opportunity um, in the space. Well, it's exciting. Um, you know, it's a, a new frontier that we're, we're tackling. Um, but it, uh, I, I think as beef producers, uh, we've got a great story to tell and we've got to keep telling it and uh, keep documenting what we're doing and, and uh, just be leaders in this space. And that's what I'm proud about the American Hereford Association, the board of directors that would have stepped forward and, you know, said, hey, you know, let's be bold. Um, let's let's do something that can help the entire beef industry. And so uh, we're very excited to be a part of uh, the project that we have at CSU uh, with you all and uh, the cattle genetics team. And um, we're excited where it's going to take us. Yeah, it's very exciting. And thank you for your partnership and your leadership in the space. Any other uh, parting words, Kim, that you'd like to share with the audience? Oh, just thanks for having me and um, for being so open-minded about a tough space. Awesome. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's uh, podcast and uh, we welcome you to go back and listen to uh, some of the other podcasts covering annual meeting. We have uh, a couple more to finish up our coverage uh, from October and uh, get you through uh, to Christmas time. And we've got a lot of great, exciting things happening here at the association. Uh, the breeders continue to step up to the challenge uh, that's faced uh, them in this drought, and uh, we're going to get through it. Hopefully rain is coming and we get some good snowpack uh, this winter. Uh, the markets have been strong. And uh, the demand for her for genetics continues to be very, very strong. So keep doing a good job out there. And uh, with that, we'll be signing off.
Thanks for tuning in to the American Hereford Association's podcast, 1881, with host Shane Bedwell. For more information, visit Hereford.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.